the Time, Season 6, Episode 1 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom, one of the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap, but I am not alone. I am never alone. I'm joined by a man who has been in my dreams all summer. I followed a little red bird to lead me to this Skype window where I see... Kurt Clark before me. Kurt, welcome back. Thank you, thank you. Spent spent a lot of time in the land of uncursed podcasts, um, but uh, now I'm here. <laughs> now, is that is there a first curse? Is there a second curse that somebody... You know, did your brother happen to come and cast a curse as well that everyone blamed on you at first? It's all just the Clark curse. It's all, it's all the Clark curse. We're just living under it. It's a blanket term. Exactly. Kurt, for those of you, for those out there that may not have followed you over the course of this summer, how has your <laughs> once upon a time off season been? Uh, it's been pretty off. Um, I, 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 I pretty much like once we closed down shop in May, um, I, I didn't uh, really kind of air out the attic and dust off the shelves until probably last night. I, d- I did watch the the pre-show, What what Oncers Want to Know. Um, but uh, other than that, it's just been pretty much uh, uh, either completely on or completely off. So it's uh, I, I came back full speed. Well, I'm glad the switch has been flipped in a way. Exactly. Uh, now you are warmed up and ready to go. Uh, I know I got to see you in person in Chicago a couple months ago for an RHAP event. That was a lot of fun. I have committed to my resolution that I made at the end of our feedback show at the end of season five about watching Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. Admittedly, I'm only halfway through the season slash series at this point, but I mean, if I'll give a hot take now, it's it's not that bad. No. I, I, I think going in a lot of people, I was expecting like the worst that this was a God awful thing, but I mean, it's Better than some of the worst stuff that Once Upon a Time proper has provided us. I think there are some interesting ideas in there, and I'll spoil some stuff for those of you that have not watched Wonderland yet, but I like the idea of, like, a badass Alice, for example. Um, I love what they did with Will Scarlet, and it makes me pissed off now that they did absolutely nothing with him in Season 4 after bringing him in from the from the spinoff series. We're going to be talking about Jafar in this episode. I'm, I'm again, only halfway through the season, but I'm not a huge fan of Jafar so far. I love Naveen Andrews. <laughs> Obviously, he's a big lost head, but Jafar just is not doing it for me. And it's tough being in Wonderland. Everything is much, much more CGI than it is on this show. And yeah. think about how much we make fun of the CGI on Once Upon a Time and take that and basically throw it all over set dressing for Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. You'll sort of get the idea of the aesthetic, but... It's not unwatchable. I just think that in it's it there it could be worse, but it could also be a lot better. I watched I want to say the first four episodes and then stopped, but I think 2016 is my year of going back and binging. Uh, like right now, I am binging. I, I stopped watching Agents of Shield at the beginning of season three, and I'm currently uh, two thirds of the way back through it. Uh, likewise, I'm going to be picking up Supernatural again, and maybe it's time for me to uh, go back and and rewatch the Wonderland that I missed. I've, I found that when you kind of control it on your own terms, as opposed to having it weekly dictated to you by your DVR, there's much less pressure to stay current with it and to enjoy it. And I find that on, on a binge watch schedule, even just like one episode every couple of days, it's a little bit more bearable than having to mm-hmm. kind of watch once a week. Yeah, and the storyline in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland is much more streamlined. It's essentially about Alice 
finding her genie lover uh, who is being captured by Jafar. And that's pretty much it. Whereas Once Upon a Time has definitely built out more of an ensemble with multiple storylines going on in every episode. It's much more simplistic. And obviously when you put a lot of weight on there, sometimes it can bend in a good direction. Sometimes it can break. Admittedly, they have been stretching out this Alice and Cyrus as, you know, lovers that have not found each other yet for a while now. It reminds me of like an American tale when you have all those scenes of like Fievel just missing his family or the family just missing Fievel. We've had a, a few too many of those for my liking, but Again, I can't complain too, too much about it. I'm intrigued to see what the rest of the season will provide for me. Kurt, maybe you're seeing your own flashes of your own binging future of possibly checking out Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. Possibly, possibly. And, and who is that on the couch next to me in the hood watching it with me? I don't know. I'm confused. Who knows? Maybe you found a binging buddy without even knowing it. We'd only Who knows what the future will provide and what path we will take ultimately to uh, a solid destination but let's jump into the season six premiere. Kurt, just overall, what did you think about this episode? And specifically, how does it stack up for you in comparison to other season premieres that we've talked about? I, I didn't care for it that much, if I'm being completely honest. But I also give it like a lot of grains of salt as I'm watching it in terms of, you know, it's... Grains of sand? There are grains of sand, as, as the case may be. Um, there's those episodes that seem to do this a really good job just because the way they were set up to be able to just kind of take off running and barely miss a beat. This one seemed to be more one of the ones where they kind of want to get to someplace by episode two or three, and so they kind of have to rush through a lot of stuff in the premiere. That's a little bit how I felt with this one. Uh, I felt a little bit of a disconnect from where we left off at the end of season, uh, at the end of season five, but... I'm I'm willing to because it was the premiere and I understand that they're trying to kind of get the ball rolling in a lot of different directions. I, I I'm okay with that. So even though I didn't enjoy it as much as I have some previous premieres or even mid-season premieres, um, like I said, I'm willing to let that that slide and I'm looking more forward to some of the uh, next couple episodes. See, it's interesting that you say that you felt there were a lot of things happening because I would say this is one of the smaller season premieres that we've had. I mean, comparing it to season five premiere was when they first went to Camelot and then at the end of the episode was Emma finally turning into Dark Swan. The season four premiere, the one that really sticks out in my head is the big snow monster that Elsa set upon Storybrooke. So we really didn't have that. You would think that the confrontation with Hyde, even Zelina sort of lampshades <laughs> it later on in the episode that usually it would take them like eight we, or nine episodes. Yeah, That was one of my favorite points in the episode because it's exactly, I mean, when I say there's a lot, um, there was a lot happening. I meant, I mean, like it felt like there were parts of it that weren't fast forward. And the whole capture of Hyde was one of those things where I think maybe that's exactly what I was thinking is this is typically the tour to, what was it Zelina said? This is typically the sort of thing that would take us days and days and days to accomplish. And you got it done on day one. Good job. Job. Uh, I thought that was a little bit of a wink and a nod to the, the viewers uh, in terms of how sometimes there's things that they'll have to take several episodes to settle. So I think for me, it was just more like there was a lot that seemed to be on fast forward in order to get it to a point where they could pick up the plot where they want to in episode two or three. And I wonder if this episode is going to function as sort of a microcosm of what we're going to see for the next of this, the rest of the season. I don't think this is necessarily a spoiler, but I know the creators came out after season five ended and said that they are for now done with the half season format, which will make things very interesting in terms of scheduling and also storytelling. But 
I wonder if that means that they're really going to try to go back to a season one or even season two type of formula where they're not necessarily going to say, we'll tell an 11-episode story and then we won't address it ever again in the second half of the season. Maybe things will become a little more fluid and maybe in making things a little more micro rather than macro and possibly you know, addressing some storylines very quickly. Maybe they're really making room for a lot more stuff to happen this season than per usual. See, I'm expecting the exact opposite. I'm thinking that A, scheduling... I don't see scheduling being an issue. I, I imagine it's going to take on the exact same schedule. Uh, it's just that the, those mid-season story arcs aren't going to be there. I was expecting if they kind of take on a a 22-episode season as opposed to two 11-episode micro-seasons, I think with a 22-episode season, you get a chance for a lot more macro story arcs. You're not rushing toward having everything wrapped up after 11 episodes, so you actually have the chance to you know, take that um, Megan Hercules story and not wrap it up and introduce it in a single episode, but to stretch that out over two or three because you're kind of in the same setting for a 22-episode arc. So I'm expecting a lot more actually macro storylines than we necessarily would get uh, in an 11-episode miniseason. Well, let's dive into the beginning of this episode, focusing on a storyline that actually you just alluded to. Might be one of those that might get addressed in a couple of episodes or might become a longer macro storyline, but it's something that's completely new to Once Upon a Time, at least the Once Upon a Time proper show. Starts off with this very picturesque landscape of a man riding a horse dodging Someone shooting lightning bolts on a magic carpet, you know, a usual landscape. <laughs> um, and it turns out that this man rides into a sort of a fortress or hideout, I guess it, is a better term. It looks like like an Agrabin garden shed. I mean, it wasn't like a full building. It, it was just this, it was like a... Like, 10% of what you would expect from a normal size building I guess. It was just it was strange. It was like an outside it was like an outbuilding but there was no main building. <laughs> it's a, it was an Agrabah studio apartment, basically. But it was even all like sort a, of a fifth of cont- that. <laughs> contained in one room. I'm exactly. sure the the, pri- the rent on it is probably fantastic. Definitely worth the bang for your buck there. Uh, but the man approaches, and we see that there's a shadowy figure that's sort of looked over by this young woman. And it turns out that this shadowy man is the savior. And this sort of raises one of many flags in the course of this scene. Uh, I know that in the press before the season started, Eddie Kisses and Adam Horowitz said that they were going to dive a little more into the mythology of the Savior. Kurt, when you heard, even before knowing that the Savior would eventually be Aladdin, knowing that there was a Savior that existed in another possible timeline or maybe in a different era, did that surprise you at all and or excite you? (laughs) I'll take those two points separately. Um, Did it surprise me? It really didn't. And and maybe this is, uh, you know, false memories in my old age. Uh, you know, I am a Gen Xer. Um, uh, but I, I, I swear, like in a, one of the podcasts from the last few seasons, we had kind of said, well, you know, there are multiple dark ones. The dark one's kind of a, a mantle get that gets passed from person to person. You know, have there been a historic line of saviors as well as Emma, the first savior? I swear at one point we've at least entertained that notion. So at least in my head, I wasn't surprised, but it, it made immediate sense to me. Uh, kind of what they were doing, at least the way I envisioned it, was that um, not necessarily this was a concurrent savior, but somebody who was potentially a savior prior to Emma. Again, we don't necessarily know the timing. Uh, did it excite me? Um, 
it intrigued me. I'm like, okay, this is the storyline that they're going to explore. I, I'm wondering what this actually implies. Are we going to see things happen to this savior that we would then expect to separately impact Emma, or is it going to have some sort of, you know, direct con- confrontation between these two? I, I wasn't quite quite sure. So I'm intrigued. I'm I'm, put, I'm holding pushing the hold button on excitement though. <laughs> on a scale of uh, magic carpet ride to camel dung, where do you stand on it? <laughs> Uh, 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 which of those is better? <laughs> just, this is going to be the first of many Aladdin references. I hope you just prepare yourself for it. It's oh, going to be God. a long I, season. I was wondering if I was going to have to rewatch that. Um, You're going to have to. It's my favorite Disney movie. I, you know, it's it's up there for me too. It's I I, I would look forward to rewatching Aladdin more than I did watching Frozen for the first time. Um, so I, I, you know, what? hey, I like the magic carpet. I'd have to go there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm intrigued by it. And you brought up the, we did indeed have a conversation beforehand, I think it was the beginning of season five, about the idea of multiple dark ones. There's the probably the idea of multiple saviors, but even the idea of the author as well. When we really find out about that at the end of season four, that obviously Isaac slash Henry are not the only author, that there have been authors over the years. Yeah. It seems like Once Upon a Time really likes to deal with this idea of like a rotating <laughs> cast, if I, you will, or think, in, in rep. I think the word you're looking for is legacy, Mike Bloom. Yes. <laughs> Who has the legacy advantage of being a savior? Exactly. Um, but I, I think that if we continue to have Aladdin and the Agrabah structure in the flashback, it will be interesting to see how much Aladdin's storyline will either parallel or diverge from Emma's. Because I agree with you. I feel like with the showing of the Tremors this episode, they're clearly trying Mm -hmm. to link the two, but maybe there's something that's going to happen there that will make their symptoms completely different. I'm putting the cart before the camel, before the, the, the cart, if you will, a little bit, Uh, because this man, a man, the shadowy figure, the guy in the, the magic carpet comes in and kills the guy that was trying to appeal to the savior. It turns out that this man is Jafar. The savior is Aladdin. There's hinted a little bit of history between the two. Once upon a time, it's always up in the air as to whether the history between characters is direct canon with Disney or whether it's something completely separate. It turns out to be the latter more so than the former. Jafar definitely alludes to a history with Aladdin. Kurt, do you think that means that we're going to get more flashbacks but even before this moment as to how Aladdin might have possibly become the savior? Um, I think so. If I, you know, gun to head, uh, I would, I would have, I would say, I would guess yes, that we're going to get a little bit of backstory to, uh, Aladdin's savior roots, uh, his, his, his savior legacy as it were. Cause I think we, we do see a lot of obvious, obvious parallels between Emma and Aladdin in terms of like what they're going through, at least at this point, um, you know, is introducing the fact that there is a legacy line of saviors. And I think that to not explore how uh, Aladdin became the savior or to see some similarities between his past and what we already know uh, Emma's past is, I, I think that would be a really missed opportunity. And it'd be interesting if, obviously, we have not seen Jasmine, but you don't even need to check out the promotional materials to know that Jasmine's got to be in there somewhere. And, Mm -hmm. you know, will it become a a Merlin and Nimue type of situation where, you know, he, he had fallen in love with Jasmine, but his power had sort of corrupted him and she disappeared for some reason? There's a lot to be said. I personally am excited about the Aladdin storyline. Again, it is my favorite Disney movie, and I have been clamoring for years at this point on the podcast to have an Aladdin storyline. 
I know that Jafar was involved in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland. I know that Naveen Andrews is not back. Instead, I think it's actually an actor from The Mummy who's replacing it. Uh, I don't think they're going to say like, oh no, Jafar used a spell to change his face. So now he's different. I think they, they might, I would not put it past Once Upon a Time to just sort of start re- randomly rewriting the canon or adding new elements to the Jafar story that they didn't before. Sort of like what they did with Robin Hood when they replaced him. Kurt, I I know that you do not purposely pursue promotional materials. This was something that was very much hyped up over the summer. Uh, At Comic-Con, they had a big trailer that showed this storyline. How did you find out about it, and what have have your thoughts been about this, even just based on this one scene we've seen thus far, the storyline? Um, I, I can't remember if I saw the uh, explanation or the introduction, quote unquote, of uh, Aladdin and cohorts uh, in a ABC promo between other shows. Like it might have been when I was watching Speechless uh, last week. Uh, great show. Check it out, folks. Um, uh, but I did, like I said, I also did watch the the introduction, the hour before Once Upon a Time, which was kind of a recap and listener questions. And, and there they did introduce uh, Jasmine and Aladdin and a few other, a few other uh, uh, untold stories, folks. So uh, that, that's how I was inter- introduced to it. I managed to make it through most of the summer, but I figured just in case there was something relevant in that hour promo, I, I figured I should watch that. Yeah, and we were talking about this offline, but... If you watched the Emmys last week, which aired on ABC, every Once Upon a Time commercial barely even featured our main characters. They said, hey, look, Jasmine and Aladdin are here, which, you know, might be part of the ABC marketing department to try to draw new people to the show. I know that this premiere, I think, was down from last season's premiere, and I'm sure a topic will come up now that the show has kind of become long in the tooth about its eventual longevity, but... Yeah, it's, it was definitely a big promotional material, sort of like with Frozen. I think they're trying to uh, capitalize a little bit on the popularity of Aladdin, not so much as Frozen, which was such an immediate hit. This is, you know, a movie that's almost 25 years premiered or, you know, on the silver screen, if you will. So I, I'm personally ha- happy that they're doing this fan service, and mm-hmm. hopefully they use this as an opportunity to do some interesting things with it, especially, again, tying it back into the storyline with Emma. Right. And and I I like this more than I did Frozen in terms of how they're introducing because to me Frozen felt very much not necessarily shoehorned, but it was very just in terms of recency. It just felt like we're going to introduce this to capitalize on the success of a recent box office hit. Like it it just felt too marketing y for me. Um, whereas this feels more of an homage to a beloved uh, uh, movie. So I, I and, and it was a movie that I just tended to like a little bit better than Frozen. Uh, so I'm, I'm not I, I'm not mad. Well, let's pilot our podcast dirigible away from Agrabah. I'm sure we will revisit it in future episodes. Let's get to our main timeline in Storybrooke. And we start with good old once upon a time boning, Kurt, as Hook and Emma are about to go at it. They are about to do the tango, yeah. Um, and, and not in a crypt. I thought everyone did it in Once Upon a Time in, uh, in shady locations. Well, now that they've got that house um, with the unstable foundation, apparently, <laughs> uh, the yeah, the whole thing starts to shake, and it's unfortunately it's uh, not uh, either Emma or Hook's prowess that is causing that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely not. If quakes last for more than four hours, please consult Dr. Whale. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> 
<laughs> so they notice a quake. Everyone does. And they're driven outside into the clearing just when, and I know that with season premieres, they almost, they take place usually almost immediately after everything ended in the season finale. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I don't know if after like celebratory, yay, Hades is gone. We brought magic back, etc. Then they decided to, you know, have their own little celebration, but it might be a little while afterwards, but the, the celebration, I guess, is soon broken up as they see a giant dirigible, which we saw on the Land of Old and Told Stories, has made a crash landing in Storybrooke. Yeah, and um, it's, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, it felt a little Oz-ish to me in terms of, you know, instead of a house, uh, you know, crashing and bringing with it a bunch of... Uh, uh, you know, new faces to a land. Uh, this is kind of the, the, to me. This is a little bit of the the steampunk version of that. Uh, lots of clockwork and uh, dirigibleness going on. So I, I uh, gave myself a pat on the back because I wrote in my notes dirigible before Jekyll even said it. Same thing. Same thing. That was that was uh, I, I was happy with that. So kind of kind of a our first match of the season. Look out, New York Times crossword. Here we come. Yes. <laughs> so Hyde immediately reveals himself probably going along with the lines of what you said about storylines kind of being rushed a lot quicker than usual here but Hyde reveals he talked at the end to Regina he kind of alludes to the fact that oh you know gold made a trade with me so now I'm here we had thought initially that it just meant his presence in Storybrooke it turns out the deal was for the entire town of Storybrooke and so Hyde has now used this to is this sort of like a weird management thing where he's the owner, but not technically the mayor who takes precedence him or Regina in the hierarchy? Well, like it's, it wasn't, it wasn't gold's town to give. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like me giving you the street I live on. It's, it's, it's government property. I will uh, take your street, Kurt. <laughs> and then, and there's like, what power does this actually give him? I'm, I'm sure like in, we've talked in the past about how naming something uh, can, uh, knowing something's name or naming something gives you great power over it. So it, it's, I'm sure maybe in, in the actual land of untold stories that, you know, a word is a, literally a bond here. It's like, like even if you're given a metaphorical key to the city, it's not like you can like open every door in it. So I, I didn't really you know buy this necessarily uh, a, a whole lot. Um, and it kind of turns out as we as we find out that this doesn't really give him much power over the city anyway. Yeah. So I know at the end of season five, they did allude to you know when Hyde becomes Hyde, or at least when he was still a part of Jekyll, he sort of possessed this superhuman strength he doesn't really seem to utilize that too too much right he does kind of get placed in these super strong manacles in just a little bit but he's much more quiet and subdued than i think mr hyde was going to be shown initially and there's something fun that i don't think we pointed out when we first saw him cat smith asked us is it just me or does hyde sound like bane from the dark knight rises kurt did i just blow your mind with that question oh because um, I, I, I couldn't unhear it after I saw that question. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I didn't see the question until after, until I think today. Um, so I would have to, I, I will listen for it the next time we go. Like from memory, I can kind of picture that voice coming out of him, but I'll have to withhold judgment until uh, this episode two. Yeah, it's something like nothing's more dangerous than an untold story and the people who don't want them told. It's like some just like take away the mask and that's essentially hide. And speaking of which, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but I'm loving what they're doing with Hyde so far. Granted, it's been like one and a half episodes that we've seen him, but already I feel like he's been an improvement above Hades. 
Yeah, no, he's I I because I I enjoy the um the actor for, he was in like I said being human. I believe he was in the I think last last uh, season I mistakenly said he was in the UK version. He was in the US version of Being Human. Uh, he played a vampire, so actually not too uh, far off of, of a role. Considering especially how I when we saw him at the end of season five, I was like, is he playing a vampire again? Because I think I thought he was Dracula. Actually, well, at he the time. looked super pale. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, it's I, I mean I'm enjoying this, uh, especially um, not just his portrayal of Hyde, but the fact that they even have uh, Hyde as a character is again, and the fact that we do are delving into these quote unquote untold stories that are a little bit askew from the Disney verse that we often go into. I, I'm in, I'm enjoying this changeup, and I'm happy as well that, and we'll talk more about his scenes with Emma, but it's not. It's less so that Jekyll is the smart one and Hyde is the strong one. It seems like Hyde also has his own capabilities of cunning, and he knows a lot about the savior mythology that apparently Jekyll does not, or at least Jekyll's not revealing that information. So I'm happy that they sort of retooled this character to not, to not make him just a, a big, brutal lug. I think that's, that's going to make him a really interesting villain. It, it might be the whole... Um you know, book smart versus street smart sort of a dichotomy between the two. Because I also know, not only does he like know a lot about like, you know, the the history of the savior, which you could argue that that's book smart, but at the same time, like he had, you know, he also, and we'll get to the the temple of Morpheus and the dreamland. Like he, he at the end of the last season was able to kind of barter that information uh, with, with gold for, well, apparently ownership of the town. Um, so it's like, he's got like this, you know, uh, you know, triple A guide to the multiverse where he can just kind of pull out information as needed. He's like the 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 Wikipedia of of Once Upon a Time, where he just knows these random things. He'd be great at at trivia night. Yeah, he's like the Zaphod Beeblebrox of uh, with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he just sort of knows. He's a little bit of a doofus, but he just kind of knows a little bit about everything. Yeah. The heroes try to strike at him first. Regina and Emma use their candy cane magic, but. Alas, it does not work, and they decide to push forward and find that the dirigible has indeed crashed, but nobody is inside. Jekyll reasons that they all have scattered. We'll talk about this a little bit later, Kurt. What, were, what are your thoughts about like the introduction of these untold stories refugees? <laughs> um, considering we really haven't had any... Um introduced yet except like the very end where you kind of at, at granny's um it was a bit odd because like on the one hand we 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 saw this at a couple different points in the premiere is on the one hand they're kind of being treated as these these refugees who need help you know come to granny's we'll give you food and shelter and clothing uh they've got clothing they're fine there um but on the other hand, they're also being talked about as, you know, Hyde's allies have ha- and friends have crashed in the woods. And so there's also this little bit of, you know, are these people uh, in league with Hyde and are they to be trusted? Um, so it, they're kind of looked at in both ways. And I'm not quite sure. I wasn't quite sure until the end of the episode what the our lead characters were thinking of the refugees in terms of are these people who need help and we're going to take them in or are these people who are not to be trusted because we think they're in league with Hyde and it turns yeah, out sure, I think it looks surely an issue I'm sure the Storybrook leaders are highly contesting whether they should take in the refugees <laughs> or submit them to various background checks before bringing them in closed that uh, 
Oh, never mind. Just no, this is going to be wide open, Kurt. It is the year 2016. This is an issue that needs to be talked about on Once Upon a Time. They're going to build a wall between Storybrook and the Land of Untold Stories. <laughs> well, sometimes there's a wall that's built around the town, a magical wall. Sometimes yeah. it isn't. We're still not sure at this point. I'd, I'd agree with you. I think that some of the fun that we talked about at the end of last season with all these characters from the Land of Untold Stories is that, like, oh, here are some characters able to cause some mischief. But it seemed like none of them really caused mischief. I mean, Jekyll was saying, you know, all oh, these characters are out. It's going to bring chaos. But I don't know. I, I had a tough time believing when Mary Margaret and David find some later that she's like, oh, they're scared. They're, they're not mm. like baby animals. They're people. And honestly, uh, they, they seemed a little bit more scared and off-put by the shadowy figures with torches uh, than the actual uh, untold stories refugees were. Like, think, um, I, don't, I don't know. It's... I didn't. I didn't view them as scared, but they may be confused. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's true. I mean we we had the Camelotians last season that might have fallen under the same thing if they had uh, if they had more character build up. But I guess we'll see. I mean, contained in those untold stories, characters are probably going to be a bunch of people that we're going to see come to prominence later on. So we'll see how much they really serve as a threat oh, to our heroes later on. You're saying there's going to be some bad skittles in the bunch, Mike. Yep, we're gonna. We took a big handful of Skittles and Grannies. Let's see how many end up poisoning us after uh, all. But it's the risk we take when we grab a handful. There you go. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. It's, it truly is. We're truly are dating the podcast right now. Yeah, but we're having a good time with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Still a good night. Uh, see if you can follow this logic with me, Kurt. So Jekyll says that to subdue Hyde, he's going to create a weapon that functions in a similar way as the stun gun that the orderly had used on him when he was the warden back in the land of untold stories. And it just so happens that the technology to do so came from the dirigible itself. Did I follow that correctly? Uh, close. That the the technology that was uh, kind of formed the basis for the stun gun, the stun baton, the, ta- the yeah, the, the, the don't, don't tase me uh, moment of, of the, the finale. Don't tase uh, techno- me, Hulk. Yeah, there we go. The... the uh, the technology behind the stun gun is the same technology behind the dirigible. Uh, and so because of that, he should be able to salvage some elements of the dirigible to form a MacGyverish uh, uh, stun gun. Uh, don't, don't watch it. Just don't watch when, it. When, did, when does MacGyver come into Once Upon a Time? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, given I can't see the show lasting more than a few episodes, I don't know. <laughs> that's a story that really should have been untold uh, having watched the premiere last week well as the heroes start following ideas and shuffling around uh, a piece of metal hits the ground and sort of sets off something in emma something that we have never seen before emma has a vision of her sword fighting a hooded figure in this really oddly lit space we'll get a little more information about it but kurt when you first saw this, what were your initial thoughts? Um, my initial thoughts were, okay, we've got a flash forward. Um, and it's strange because like, just like coincidentally, it happened to co- it, coincidentally, it coincided. Uh, there's using the root word um, with an episode of uh, season three of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where it was much of the same thing. It was about kind of prophetic uh, visions looking forward. And so I think maybe just because that's where I was at in another show, I immediately thought, OK, she's seeing something that's going to be happening to her soon. Uh, but I yeah. did think it was, it was funny. I, I thought it was strange. But at the same time. 
Uh, it does tie a little bit into the fact, and I think you know, Jessica Frey had brought this up in season five, it does tie into the fact that, hey, the Savior is now having visions of the future, which is something that we wondered when it happened in, in uh, Hades, uh, or sorry, in, in the Underworld. Uh, Underbrook. Uh, Underbrook. Uh, is that something that's now part of her permanent power set? And I think at the time we're like, uh, we don't really foresee that. But yeah, if you kind of look at this episode, um, she's kind of having those vi- those prophetic visions again. I wonder if it was a little bit of a chicken egg or a, a dragon egg situation, though, where they're like, all right, what can we do with Emma? Oh, yeah, remember that random storyline we wrote last season about how she foresaw her mother's death? Great, let's put that in. It'll be interesting to see, you know, when they plot out the path of the Savior, how much they were really trying to incorporate this. But yeah, it does sort of like, you know, the the back half of season five made the uh, the random Bear King episode from the first half of the season more important. This is sort of like our version of the Bear King. The thing that we really didn't like from season five is now becoming important. I definitely thought it was a flash forward as well. It was just super vague, and I'm sure that as the episodes progress, this flash forward will happen more and more. Obviously, the connection to Aladdin comes when her hand starts twitching. She has saved your spasms, if you will. Uh, she's going to throughout this episode. A little bit of performance anxiety. <laughs> a little bit. And it, it's it's funny um, because, you know, as we, as we do go more through the episode, you see a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, and it did... Uh, you know, jumping ahead, uh, we we do see uh, you know some of her cohorts that are like at the, in the in the same era presence uh, in the same area as her. Uh, we we do see Mary Margaret and Charming, uh, or Snow White and Charming, and Hook and Henry there. Um, it did actually remind me from a whole flash forward perspective and and who's involved. It reminded me of the season premiere of um, How to Get Away with Murder from this past week, uh, where like Kurt, big, you are so ABC synergized this week. I I, I am. I, where and this isn't really a spoiler alert, but it's like the whole thing. It looks like it's going to be for for this. Uh, I think for the third season now of, of How to Get Away with It. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my shortened name of it. And <laughs> uh, get away with it. How to get away, how to get away with it um, is you know. There's going to be a f- flash forward in every episode uh, where you slowly kind of, by process of elimination, figure out who has been killed. And they're going to kind of like, oh, now we know it's not this person because they appeared in the flash forward. Now we know it's not this person. I was wondering if they're kind of doing the same thing. Uh, you know, who is Emma fighting? Because, well, we know it's not these four because they're on the scene. Do we kind of slowly discover who else isn't over the course of the season? So I do want to bring that up now um, because, again, we'll find out more about the vision as the episode progresses. But Becca brought up a theory that I have seen has been talked about a little bit on the Internet the day after this episode aired. Kurt, what are the chances that the hooded figure Emma is fighting is a dark version of herself? Or a different version of herself from the from the even the further future, or, or, or so I don't necessarily need, think it needs to be a dark version. Um, but you know, I I left the episode uh, not thinking of that as a possibility, and I'm um, like kind of a head slap moment when I when I saw uh, the tweet. Um, I think it, I think in terms of what's the twist that's underlying this mystery, that would be the twist. I mean, otherwise it's just a mystery. Um, and I'm thinking. Honestly, I'm thinking more likely than not that's what it's going to be. And I really hope it isn't. I, I hope that there's actually a little bit more of a mystery behind it other than simply saying, like, what's the most twistiest answer? And there we go. Um, so yeah. I think I think that actually the odds are pretty high it's going to be Emma. Like, otherwise, you know, why disguise who it is? Um, 
unless that's like the big reveal. So I, I think the odds are likely. I'm hoping that it's not, though. Well, I mean, that would solve a lot of problems, right? Because first, the Oracle tells her, you know, you will die from this stabbing, from this sword fight. If Emma is fighting herself, then maybe one of the Emmas dies. And that sort of solves the problem where you're not necessarily killing her off so much so as you're killing off a part of herself. The reason why I said dark version of herself is because we saw in the season five finale that we now sort of have this magic that allows an evil version of you to kind of separate from yourself. We saw that with Jekyll and Hyde. That's our main problem now where the evil queen is separated from Regina and sort of on her way. So I'm thinking with the theming of it that they would, maybe that's a a chance for dark Swan to return, even though she wasn't really that evil to begin with. But that's the reason why I think it might be the darker side of Emma. Oh, that could very well be. That's actually a good kind of origin story for, you know, how this other being came. Reverse into. Emma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, instead of reverse engineering it, you reverse Emma'd it. Um, yeah. yeah, no, th- you know, that's actually a really strong possibility. I think even at the, um, at some point last season, we wondered, you know, is there going to be a, uh, potentially a, you know, more splits in personality besides just uh, Jekyll Hyde and evil Queen Regina? Um that could very, very well be. I should mention, by the way, I, I realize again, I put the camel before the, the cart in a way that um, we are only talking about, we're, we're doing our usual separation of storylines. We're only talking about the Emma stuff for right now. We will definitely de- dedicate plenty of time to the, uh, the Morpheus storyline and the Zelina Regina stuff in just a little bit. But let's continue along the, the Emma path here. The heroes set out on their plan. Uh, again, something that you pointed out was very quickly constructed and accomplished of using Jekyll's bait to draw Hyde out. It almost gets blown briefly because Emma has another savior spasm right when she's about to shoot him and Regina almost gets strangled. But Emma is able to stun him and Hyde is very quickly subdued. Mm-hmm. Kurt, any thoughts about this apprehension scene? <sighs> The thing I have to bring up, and this is like the thing that frustrated me the most with this episode, uh, is we are back to the whole, I'm facing something, and it's I have no idea what it is, and I refuse to tell somebody about it. And they've yeah. asked. That, that, above anything, is like the biggest tarnish for me on this premiere episode. The fact that she's having these visions, and they're causing her to have, to have like these tremors, and people are noticing, and they're they're confronting her saying you know what's up oh nothing nothing there's and there's not really any reason given i mean you could create reasons but they're all going to be bs there's no reason she shouldn't be telling this person she's finally with hook or her parents yeah i'm having these really troubling visions about the future even like last time she didn't maybe didn't want to upset in in sorry when in the underworld and under underbrook she didn't want to upset her mom that she saw her mom being killed or, or or you know possibly that's an explanation but this is just like a troubling vision that she's now having in a recurring manner and she's refusing to tell anybody about it. I am very unhappy with this decision by the writers. Yeah, I mean, Kat Smith echoes you. She asks us, how many times are Emma's family going to believe her when she says nothing is wrong? She has the worst poker face. And it stinks because I feel like Emma has gone a good amount of character development throughout her time on Once Upon a Time. Obviously, she was sort of the straight man to everything coming into season one, but now she's sort of become the center of all action in season six. But 
if we just keep repeating the same character beats over and over again, I mean, Hook even outlines when they're about to go at it in the beginning of the episode how much she's changed from the person who put walls up and wore a red leather coat as a piece of armor, and now she's sort of allowed things to, to come down, and now she's a happier person. But if she goes back to the well of lying and not telling anyone and kind of striking off on her own, I guess I could understand it, but I agree it's just frustrating to watch from a character perspective of someone that I thought had changed. Yeah, and it's, I mean... <sighs> It's, it's just so frustrating. Like, how many times have they sworn to each other to always tell the truth and to never hide anything? And then, and there's times within a season where they'll be like, well, you violated that, so I can't forgive you. But now you're still just doing it again. So, like, just tell people that you've got this degenerative savior condition. And, 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 ugh. Yeah. Well, I mean, Becca did ask us a question, you know, over under how many episodes until Emma tells her family and Hook about her imminent death. Since you said things were moving pretty quickly this episode, do you think that it's going to take a while still before anyone finds out about it? Or do you think she's going to end up kind of fessing up, going against the previous Emma's actions and deciding to tell her family immediately about it? Now, this is something that I think the expanded season uh, is going to have a play with. Used to be... We used to be able to say, you know what, this will be wrapped up in three episodes. This will be wrapped up by episode five of the half season. It's going to be a lot harder to predict those things. I think, like, I, I, I'm thinking they're going to potentially stretch them out longer than they naturally would if this is going to be a 22 episode uh, arc instead of an 11 episode arc. So, um, if I gave you Mike Bloom an over under of four and a half episodes, would you take the under or the over? I'd so take less, the over. Less than, so you think it's going to be more than four and a half? Absolutely. I think I, that. You're going you're, you're to take the under then? I, I, by default, I'll take the under. You'll take the under, Brooke? Huh. Um, yeah, I, I think that you're completely right in terms of a longer macro sense of storytelling means that there's they don't need to necessarily cram everything into a set of episodes. And especially because her and Aladdin seem to be having the same condition, but we don't know exactly what the symptoms are and, you know, how degenerative Aladdin will become. So if they want to plot out the storytelling by being like, and here are the other symptoms that Emma's experiencing, I feel like they have to push her to a a near breaking point for her to finally tell somebody that something's going on. It's going to get worse is what you're saying. Or or there's going to be uh, additional symptoms. um, And, uh, and, and we need to kind of see it's going to take a while for her to reach a breaking point. I, 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 can, I can see that. Though, I mean, segueing into this next Emma scene, we see that her parents are still sort of, are starting to be concerned about her considering that they send a little seen face to modern once yeah. upon a time, the return of Archie and Pongo. Yeah, that was, I was, I was, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by this. I was like, oh, this is, this is a nice callback. I know that he still has his, um, his practice in town or out in the woods in the, as the case may be. Yeah. I wonder if now all the refugees that have PTSD from going to a new world can get Archie a lot of work. Instead of coffee, he should have brought her some fries with her shake. <laughs> Cause she's shaking. <laughs> oh hands, boy. That's are, yeah. That's why so. bad bedside manner on Archie's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> 
sorry. I had to. I had to. I mean, I would say that it was great to see him. I agree. Total great callback to the early seasons. But, I mean, he did a serviceable job here. He didn't really stick out at all. I'm really hoping, again, this was alluded to in earlier press releases over the summer, that, oh, we get to see old characters again. Hopefully this is not a one-and-done cameo from Archie. Hopefully he makes more appearances, because that would suck if they brought the character back for one scene just to say, hey, Emma, your parents wanted (laughs) to send a psychiatrist to you to talk about why you're freaking out so much. Yeah, and she, even she like just calls him a cricket, like in terms, and, and and it's kind of framed up like she's uh, uh, using a derogatory term for him, or or she's insulting him by calling him a cricket. Um, <laughs> that is so, our word. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, oh, so many places. Um, so yeah, I, I I would hope to see him more. It would have been it would have been nice actually if we saw him as part of, like the search party. So he's there as a minor character. Maybe he was in the background and I didn't see him. Um, but it just, I, I would have liked maybe a little bit more of a natural introduction as opposed to a ta-da. But I didn't mind. It was, it was like I said, it was, I, was, I was happy to see that he's back as a character. So Emma decides to visit Hyde, who has been imprisoned in the mental institution because screw the sheriff station nowadays. We're just putting people down here. And her and Hyde have a little bit of a showdown. Hyde is sort of flexing what we've talked about before with his conniving muscles he identifies her immediately as a former prisoner he talks to her about the the battle in her mind's eye and how she must hate the loneliness he decides to go to choke her but is unfortunately uh, restrained by those manacles which actually uh mimics frozen a lot i feel like uh, i think elsa was was chained up at some point during the film in a very similar style um and he's very vague about wanting to help Emma. It's clear that Emma wants to wants his help, but she sort of refuses to play his game. So he drops the very cryptic hint of follow the red bird. And again, this is going back to the Hyde's access to the OUAT Wikipedia in terms of, uh, again, it's just these random, um, you know, travel guide facts about the local area. Oh, here's the Temple of Morpheus. Oh, uh, you know, here's the you know what you need to know to you know follow your to get to understand what's going on with you it follows this bird i don't know it's just it's all these random things he has access to that um and it's not making me think that it's not making me feel like it doesn't make sense either it just seems like it's part of his character is that he just has access to all of these random facts and and how to help it's a little gold-like actually Absolutely. And that's why, you know, if Gold is off doing Gold stuff, mourning over his relationship with Belle, at least we have a a placeholder character in the form of Hyde. I just made this connection. Maybe I'm forcing it. Could the Red Bird possibly be like a shaded allusion to Iago from Aladdin, even though it's not Jafar's bird directly? Oh, possibly. Um, Because I don't think in Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, the Iago bird existed. They they, no. they stray away from talking animals in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, <laughs> um, possibly. I but I think it ties in more to the female that we come into uh, uh, to see in the forest. I think that's going to be more of a tying into who she is, um, as opposed to necessarily Aladdin's story. But you know, at this point, at this point, it's up in the air, literally, because it's a bird. Well, let's talk about that that woman. So Emma, she is able to somehow, through not such a great acting job, kind of send the bird or send Hook on his way without making him majorly question what she's doing and follows that bird, uh, to quote a popular Sesame Street film, uh, to (laughs) this young woman who reveals her name is the Oracle. Kurt, we have the Oracle. We have Morpheus. Are the Wachowski siblings directing Once Upon a Time now? 
Oh, potentially. <laughs> it's, you know, there, there is no spoon. Uh, there, uh, there's a lot gran- of leather, Except though. at Granny's Diner. <laughs> what was that? There is a lot of leather, though. I feel like they, the leather was a good gateway into it. There you go. Um, Eh, who who knows? Who knows? Maybe maybe we do get a little bit of uh, of, of of matrixing uh, here. We'll we'll see. So, what did you think about this Oracle character? Obviously, there's not much revealed about her, but she's yet another one of these seemingly ageless, timeless characters. That maybe it's the Oracle's job to kind of watch over the savior all along. Again, this is just me postulating. Do you think the Oracle is going to become a much bigger character later on? Or do you think it's going to become sort of like that freaky seer from season two, which appeared in one episode and was never seen or heard from again? I think it's going to be somewhere in between. I think it might take on a little bit more like a um, uh, kind of sorcerer's apprentice type character mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in terms of a powerful being who has a multi-episode arc, but never really appears a whole lot in any one of those episodes. So I think I I, I kind of also got the feeling that um, that she's somehow linked to the legacy of the savior more than she is necessarily to uh, Aladdin specifically, um, and that the that's why I was thinking like the bird might be more tied to her uh, than to to necessarily Aladdin. And I was actually mm-hmm. just doing a quick like search, like I don't know if it's like a reference to the Oracle of Delphi or some other oracles, um, uh, but I was wondering if like seeing if there's any uh, mythological ties between birds or red birds and oracles. Wasn't able to do find something in a quick search, but there might be something out there. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm curious as to you know Hyde points her to this oracle as a way to find out more about her own story. Um, we'll we'll see. I think we're going to get some some history there. And I wonder what Hyde's big game plan is as well in bringing people from the land of untold stories. I mean, he, I guess, has the town, speaking from a contractual perspective. I don't exactly know what his big plan is. And is he necessarily manipulating Emma by bringing her to the Oracle and putting thoughts in her head about her possibly falling apart as a savior? Is Or is he just doing this for fun. There are a lot of motives to be questioned, which makes me excited because I think it's always fun to find out what the main character's big goal is. Sometimes they're not so great. They they don't live up to expectations, but I still think it's fun to figure out with our big bads. But the Oracle tells Emma that what she saw is a vision from the future. We have this super creepy glare into the future from this bird whose eyes glow red like it's some sort of terminator uh that scared me personally uh and emma's future vision comes more into prominence she is fighting a hooded figure it seems to be in the middle of town square all the other heroes are there her sword falls behind her she tells the hooded figure i won't let you hurt them before she gets stabbed and the oracle basically tells her you're gonna die emma (laughs) yeah it's it's like you can was you can change the path to the destination, but the destination is the same. And, exactly. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know if this is important or not. She did say uh, when Emma met her that I was once called an oracle, and you'd be wise to trust me. Um, so I don't know if she, you know, lost her oracle status, um, but she's still again at least, you know, does that does that does the red-eyed bird trigger something that's already within Emma? Is this flash forward something that the 
former Oracle granted unto her at this point? Uh, like, what's what's fueling the visions? Uh, I think that that's just, there's still a lot that we don't know. Kurt, I would love to get your thoughts. What are your general ideas about the idea of exploring the Savior mythology? Are you excited to see it, or do you feel like this is taking up too much room and not enough to explore other characters from the land of untold stories? Ooh, okay. Um, listen, I was like, we, we talked at the beginning that I wasn't necessarily like excited. I was intrigued. Um, I'm looking forward to learning more about it. But I think one of the biggest things I was looking forward to about season six was the chance for additional, uh, again, non Disney ish characters to be explored. I mean, we saw in the uh, uh, the Once Upon a Time book, volume two, that. Uh, uh, that Henry's looking through in New York. There's like references to you know Gulliver and uh, Paul Bunyan, and so I was kind of excited to see like how that ends up playing out. But in terms of like a more uh, uh, defined and focused storyline, I'm intrigued by this idea of of the storyline of the savior, especially if you do end up kind of going over like, other historical saviors, just like you said, we've, we've had other writers and they kind of alluded to Walt Disney being one of the authors uh, and, and Shakespeare being one of the authors. It'd be interesting to see if there's other historical saviors and are the, are there other archetypes that are just kind of carried through time? Uh, so I am kind of intrigued by where they go up and a slight side note. I know you didn't watch the, uh, the lead-in hour of content, uh, but one of the questions that one of the uh, listeners or the viewers of the show asked uh, the the creators of the show was, you know, there's a, a an author. Are we going to get to see an illustrator this season? Mm. Uh, uh, but they kind of they kind of uh, laughed a little bit and, and, and hinted at, well, we think the you know, every author is also the illustrator. Was kind of where we go with that, but it still does bring this idea up of. You know, are there archetypes that are intrinsic there through stories through time? We've seen an author as an archetype. Uh, is the savior the dark one is kind of an archetype? Is the savior an archetype that we end up exploring? So I am interested in seeing uh, where that does potentially go. I'm optimistic about it. I uh, have been on record many times to say that I really enjoyed what they did with the Dark One mythology at the beginning of season five. I think the show mm-hmm. is its strongest when it goes back to its roots and not necessarily feels like it needs to create so much real estate and buy up all this land as so much as they can fix up the house that they currently own uh, or that you know they just bought uh, for their honeymoon and, and piled with junk like Golden Bell did. But I, I, I'm excited for it. I, I'll admit that you know there have been some things that were in this episode that were a little questionable, specifically Emma deciding to hide this from her family for now. But the idea of linking this back to Aladdin and the possible possibilities of what might happen to the savior and what the history of a savior is could be some very very interesting territory to discover. I mean, when Emma visit Emma visits Hyde once again. You know, Hyde says, you're not the first savior I encountered and talks about how the legend of the savior is that, you know, there's always a savior. And you kind of brought this up when you were talking about Lily at the end of season four, Kurt, sort of like an anti-savior, a big force that comes and takes it down. I'm intrigued to know from you, do you think Aladdin is the other savior that Hyde has met? Or do you think it's a completely third party that we don't even know about yet? Uh, My initial reaction was that it was Aladdin. Um... But, you know, I'm a little bit hopeful that it is potentially a third party, uh, that, that there is this uh, larger th- legacy of, of saviors that we'll, we'll kind of get to know and, um, 
at least what that kind of promises is is that it's potentially something that if there is this storyline and legacy to to the savior hopefully it's something that in a meta kind of way emma can uh learn from and take advantage of to just you know make things better in our real world well, we'll see who that savior was and if they willed it to Emma after they lost the savior legacy advantage. I'm sure we will find out in many episodes time. Let's go to Mr. Gold's storyline this episode in the Temple of Morpheus. Obviously, the first thing on his mind at the end of season five was I need to wake Belle up. She refuses to, you know, wake with true love's kiss. She's pretty mad at me about the last fight we had. Her father refuses to wake her up. I got to do things myself. And he enters her dream world through the sands of Morpheus. Kurt, or sands of, was it the sands of, not sands of time. Uh, it was, it was some sort of sand. Not, not the, uh, <laughs> not the sands of Avalon either. Uh, yeah. I'm quickly uh, consulting my notes. It, uh, uh, Temple of Morpheus. It just refers to the sand that's there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But it was so a Temple we'll, of Morpheus. There we'll, was call sand the, there. we'll call it the Sand of Morpheus until Hyde buys up that property. It's the Sand of Morpheus. Yes. So he is, he gets transported into Bell's Dream World, which sounds like a horrible Beauty and the Beast direct-to-DVD sequel. <laughs> and he meets up with a young man dressed in a robe who says he is Morpheus. Kurt, did you know beforehand that Morpheus, the god of dreams, would be appearing in Once Upon a Time this season? I did not. Okay, interesting. So uh, having had so much Greek mythology connection to the previous season, did you think this was a nice little string remnant of the previous year? Uh, kind of. Like, at, at initially, I was trying to remember, uh, is this, you know, was this Zeus? Cause I remember Zeus looked young at the end of the, uh, the last season when, when Hook came back. I was like, oh, this doesn't quite look like Zeus. And then he introduced himself as Morpheus. I'm like, oh, so all of the... Uh, Greek gods are apparently, you know, young twenty somethings. Um, so yeah, it's right out of central casting. There we go. Um, so yeah, I did, didn't, but I, I took it at face value. <laughs> also, uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think anyone was saying, hmm, I bet you this guy is actually the adult version yeah. of Rumpelstiltskin and Bell's son. <laughs> Although I did think the introduction was a little bit strange. It's like, would you like to wake up, Bell? You know, press one for yes. <laughs> it was a little bit robotic in terms of the greeting, so I thought something was maybe a little bit off. But um, uh, and I was a little bit surprised to see uh, to see Morpheus there. I was like, I, I just kind of expected um, the reference to Morpheus as the god of dreams, as opposed to necessarily him being there and him tagging along. And and, and so so that that did surprise me. I thought it was gonna be a little bit more. Uh, gold on his own uh but turns out no he's got a he's got a little sidekick here in the form of quote-unquote morpheus yeah it's more so like a christmas carol where morpheus isn't necessarily helping gold as much as he's sort of reminding him about the the limitations that he has he'll be the one to be like ah remember if the sands of time expire then she's going to go into that purgatory fire dream world from season two forever and ever so he just sort of is there not really doing anything. And I wonder maybe if, is that like a rule of the dream world that since it's technically his dream world, is he allowed to interact with him? That's sort of unknown. But it turns out that Bell's dream world, or at least this specific dream, involves Rumpelstiltskin's old castle. And he, in fact, sort of is is seen as the old Rumpelstiltskin. And Bell is, we sort of see 
how Belle viewed her living situation with him beforehand. The castle is much more garish and haunting, much closer to the real Beauty and the Beast than it was in Once Upon a Time. But Gold is adamant to make her fall in love with him again. Yeah, it was a little uh, kind of Rochamon moment there in terms of like seeing the same story through a different set of eyes. I thought I actually really liked that, and it maybe opened up Gold's eyes a little bit. Um, uh, but, you know, going back to the fact that this was actually not Morpheus, uh, as, we'll, as we find out, do we? Do you think that the whole thing about you've got an hour or you've got until the sands run out was that just uh, all a lie? Because of the <sighs> Yeah, because well, it wasn't a, actually Morpheus, and so is that a rule? That's a good question. I mean, also, I believe when, you know, David went under the sleeping curse and Henry went under the sleeping curse, when they, in season two, when they were interacting with each other through the uh, the purgatory fire room, they did not have an, a, a period of time where they were sort of in limbo before they actually went into the room. They almost immediately went in there, so... It could be a lie. I'm also a little confused as to, you know, if Morpheus is just a name, if he was masquerading as the god, or if it turns out that they gave birth to the guy that is able to become the master of dreams. I think the latter is a little ridiculous, but not outside the realm of possibilities of Once Upon a Time. Um, So, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to say it's still a thing, but he just happens to know about it because it's his dream world, I guess. Yeah, potentially. Well, it's, it's that was the only part that confused me here. Um, but I, I, I just kind of bought into the the eventual explanation of how this is not Morpheus and who it is. But we'll 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 get to that. He's in the meantime, we've got a little bit of gold trying to correct and alter uh, historical perception and make make his castle a happy place. Yeah. So Kurt Gold purposely recreating the moment of the chip teacup and putting on the song to dance to like he did in his honeymoon in the beginning of season four in order to kind of warp Belle's mind. Good idea or bad idea? I think I was fine with it. Um, I think it was, it was more to me. It was just, he was trying to basically help her see the relationship through how he saw it. And he was just trying to, you know, bring back memory to her. Um, I actually had, you know, you know, when when Morpheus says, "So you'd in essence be lying to her," I was like, "Well, not, not really. I'm trying to like, he's trying to let her know, you know, help her recapture the happiness that he has." Um, I guess the only issue I had was I thought we were there was going to be bigger repercussions potentially because the the cup doesn't end up getting chipped. Like mm-hmm. he saves it from falling on the ground, and they and the, you know that at one point uh, in one of the earlier seasons, the chipped cup actually becomes a uh, plays a plays a role. Um, in, in kind of being the symbol of their relationship. So the it's, fact is their totem. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that he actually saves the cup from being chipped, I didn't know if that was actually a good idea or not. Um, I, I think it was kind of, but all of that having been said, I had absolutely no issue with what gold is doing, but I think historically looking at how we, the, the gold and bell relationship through season five, I've been much more on gold side. And I thought that that bell was being much more, uh, black and white about good and evil than uh, she had any right to be. I mean, he also, I'd say he overcompensated with not just his behavior, but also his mood. He was so cheerful and not cheerful in an evil way as Rumpelstiltskin usually is when he's trying to get one over on somebody. So to have him be so oddly smiley around her, which just really stuck out like a sore thumb, but I guess it is a dream where things are always a little bit warped. But I, I'll admit, I, I did... 
have a little bit of an awe come out of me when they started dancing with the Beauty and the Beast music playing in the background. Yeah, and it's it's and keep in mind it's also not like he's he's trying to recreate something so that uh, from memory such that it'll bring her memories back. And and as such, you know, memory isn't perfect. He's going to be playing up the highlights and they're going to be a little bit more exaggerated than normal. Just like if you were doing this for somebody uh, who like, if you just brought somebody home from the hospital and they had some minor amnesia and you were trying to kind of, you know, you know, you're going to kind of emphasize the highlights and those points that you remember in trying to kind of get them to have their memory come back. Um, So I, I, yeah, I, I, but in the, 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 I need you to help me prepare for this ball. And yes, you do have free choice. It's never about, uh, you're, you're not a prisoner. Um, and like it was, it was a, it was a series of nice moments and kind of concluding with the, I think the, the, the dance sequence. So when they're dancing and they end up going in for a kiss, it's sort of like not necessarily amnesia recovery, but bells, I guess, dream consciousness sort of becomes her real one when she sort of realizes where she is and who she's talking to is, is that, am I on the right track there? I, I think so. Um, it was kind of an interesting moment because they do start to, to kiss and you do see his face start to change to his normal kind of story, storybook complexion. Um, uh, and, and I, I think it just got, either it got real for her at that point or you know if the quote unquote morpheus had any control over this i think this this might have been the point where where he caused her to wake up a little bit because this is the point where it kind of we see he's really wanting her to make a decision about gold yeah this is when things take a really weird turn kurt first bell again sort of realizing where she is says you know this is great that you're doing this but again being with you only really causes heartbreak, and I, I am going to be, you know, I'm going to go my own path, and I'm, I would rather, you know, be in a coma and not bring my child into this world, knowing that you'll be there to take care of him. Then Morpheus appears, and even before revealing himself, pulls the whole, this was all a test convention, which I was a little... Uh, <laughs> nonplussed by uh, because <laughs> I just I, if, if it turned out he was a god and that turned out to be a test that'd be I don't know a little bit of a layaway to be like great you passed your test you can stay in your coma all you want Bell yeah I, I uh, it was it was strange um uh I, I uh, yeah it was it was just strange I, I I wasn't really quite sure what to make of this um it tended it, it it seemed to be, I'm curious where this goes, because otherwise it's like a lot of strange stuff for nothing. Like, does the, um, you know, this is, this is not a god, this is our son. Um, does that end up actually playing a role down the road? If not, this was all just really weird. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird for the sake of being weird, which... I guess I'm fine with, I guess, give me weird over boring and trite every day. But I agree with you. I just sort of question what's what's going on and what are the logistics of this? You know, Murphy said that, you know, when you sprinkle the sand over Belle, you sprinkled it over me, too. So is this a shared dream between the unborn child and the mother? That's what I got. So what what's the division between the two? You know, were there like giant, I don't know, umbilical cords falling from the sky? Was that the baby's part of the dream? Ew. Um, and like, doesn't, 
and it, what I guess what struck me wrong about this, or struck me as odd about this, is that the the unborn child seems to know quite a lot. Um, like unless it's sharing consciousness, like unless they're saying that, and this is starting to get it actually into kind of Assassin's Creed territory, uh, is that kind of you know you have ancestral memories in your DNA where you're able to know a lot more than you think you actually do because it's kind of passed down from parent to child. So like as a baby, if this is indeed kind of a dream world and he's able to manifest himself, he knows a lot more than he actually should. And like, unless he has access somehow to bells and golds memories as well. Um, that's a smart baby. Exactly. And like he, like you don't have the, the life experience to be able to say things, these things to your parents. So, you know, you know, shut the heck up and get back in the womb. (laughs) I, I don't know. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of weird magical connection between Bell and Morpheus, I guess, in utero. And I, I agree with you. You know, Bell ends up waking up and she decides to swear off gold forever, which, as weird as this story was, this was definitely the most head-thumping part of the episode for me. I've said again on record many times how... I'm getting pretty dang tired of the Bell and Rumple storyline constantly circling each other where they get together, he does something to piss her off, they break up, rinse, repeat, lather to death. Uh, but, you know, now that we have this interesting device of like, here's an adult version of their son that has now communicated to Gold that he doesn't want to see him again, is Gold now thinking that he lost another son going to try to reconnect with him some way, somehow? Yeah, I don't know. I agree with, you know, Becca tweeted us and said that the thing with Bell and Rumple is that I just don't care anymore. And that's where I'm at right now. I, 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 that's why it's like, first of all, this whole Temple of Morpheus thing was again, one of the, just like the, the capture of Hyde. This was the other thing that seemed like a major fast forward to me. Like I thought we were going to have at least like an episode or two of, of gold trying to track down this temple and then maybe a full episode or two in the dream. And then I, I, this just seemed again on, on fast forward for me. And so if the whole, uh, you know, fully formed and functioning thinking dream projection, baby, isn't something that's woven throughout the rest of season six, I'm, I'm going to be head slapping my way. So like, what the heck just really happened? So we'll put a pin on that. Or a pin on a cloth diaper, if you will, of the uh, the god possible god Morpheus. Uh, we'll 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 get to that later. Let's talk about our final storyline from this episode: the Regina Zelina post Robin death relationship. And I will say, Kurt, I am very happy that they have dealt with Robin's death. I wouldn't say realistically because the show isn't exactly realistic, but I'm glad that his death is at least ruminated with these characters i feel like when neil died which was probably the last major character death they got over it after like two or three episodes true although there did seem to be wavering a little bit on their uh pronouncement in season five about you know his soul is obliterated he's nowhere and some of it just might have been kind of lip service so for regina to say you know what I'm okay with believing that he's in a better place. But to me, it cracked open the door a little bit mm. that we might see Robin Hood again. And I'm not saying that's something I want or don't want, but they did it just the way they talked about it. To me, it seemed a little bit less I'm accepting that he I have faith that he's moved on to a better place. I don't believe he's a bit obliterated. It seemed a little bit less of faith and acceptance 
to me, it seemed a little bit more of story device to crack the door open a little for a return, uh, which I don't know how I feel about. Well, I have faith and acceptance, at least, that I think he's moved on. I mean, I know immediately after that episode aired last season, the creator said, you know, there's a chance Robin Hood may appear in flashbacks, flashbacks. or he may, he may come as a force ghost to talk to Regina, but especially considering how Sean McGuire was pretty damn pissed off at, get, at how he got killed off the show, I don't know if they'd want to have him back. Oh yeah, I guess I guess there's even even like force. I'm okay with flashback. I'm not okay with force ghost. Um, I've got a very strict line on this, um, but like I I wasn't aware about the anger of Sean McGuire. Um, so uh, that I guess you know speaks more to it. But to me, it just seemed like an unnecessary thing to. I would have been happier with Regina just. Um, uh, accepting that he was gone versus needing to have blind faith that he's in a better place to accept that he's gone. So this was definitely a storyline that functioned more on minor squabbles than it did just overall narrative because we got to see a little more of Regina post-evilectomy, if you will. And at first it seems like her mood has definitely changed when you know she finds Alina, who's become her roommate, and Zelina, if you remember from the end of season five, when all of the, a bunch of the Camelotians, including Roland and the Merry Men, went into the portal to, uh, back to the Enchanted Forest while the rest of them went to the Land of Untold Stories, Roland had given Zelina a fletching from Robin's arrow, one of Robin's arrows, to give to Regina. That's Chekhov's feather, I guess, but Zelina has lost it. But this is sort of the moment that sends Regina over the edge a bit. And I was a little surprised that it seems like even though she removed the evil queen part of herself, she still can be pretty darn angry at people. Yeah, I was trying to figure out, you know, when she's removed the evil queen, is are we going to see a difference in behavior? And and I was trying to figure out how to read Regina through this. Because there was even like one point where I thought that the what we were supposed to take away from her expressions and how she was feeling. At one point, there was like a small, it almost looked like a smile. And I, I thought like, oh, we're meant to say, like she's realizing this is normally something that she would get really upset and irate about. And she's actually okay with it. Turns out she's not actually okay with it. Anything quite the opposite. And so I'm wondering like, what was the end result in that separation taking place? Um, like it wasn't so much because if you look at Jekyll and Hyde, I mean they had it was pretty much a night and day thing, a zero and a one. You had one personality or you had the other personality. With Regina, you never really had um, uh, the evil queen personality once she was in in Storybrooke. Um, she she was a person who had fit, who had bouts of good or evil, but was always kind of under the the guise of Regina. Um, so I kind of expected more of if the evil queen was actually excised from her we'd see a little bit less snarky of a Regina and we really didn't. So I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm wishing we got a little bit of a change in how Regina was presented as a character now that the evil queen is gone. And I don't feel we've gotten that. Well, maybe that's still to come. I mean, I thought it was going to happen for a second when Emma says, okay, Regina blast hide. And Regina's like, I don't know if I can do it. I, you know, now that my evil self is gone. And I totally thought, and maybe another season of Once Upon a Time, they would have spent a good one or two episodes strictly focused on Regina getting her groove back once again <laughs> after feeling that she lost her mojo. But she was able to do so. They sort of yada yada through that. But I'd agree. I would like to, I would like to see sort of a difference between the two. What did you think about 
Selena's sort of revelation that she was angry that Regina got rid of the evil queen because, in her opinion, the evil queen was sort of the Zelina part of Regina's personality. Or at least the part that she could relate to. Exactly. Um, and I, I did think that that was interesting. Um, it's, I, but it, it's, it's almost like I think Regina's seeing... I think Regina was seeing the good in her sister, in, in Zelina. And I think we as viewers, <clears throat> excuse me, we're starting to see the good in Zelina. It's interesting, again, from a, a Rochamon, other perspective sort of way, we're seeing that, you know, maybe Zelina doesn't see herself as being good or being a hero as much as um, she's found a way to relate to the darker side of Regina while kind of almost like compromising a little bit. And by Regina getting rid of the evil queen, she's gotten rid of the the part that was kind of the meet me halfway thing. So, but I, I don't know, I guess, but there's part of me who also doesn't completely buy that Zelina only got along with Regina because there was an evil queen in Regina. Part of me doesn't want to believe that. Well, I'm wondering if maybe Zelina was also using that as kind of a coping mechanism to say, this is what Regina and I share in common. We both did some pretty nasty things in the past, but we were both able to kind of rehabilitate ourselves, and I'm kind of working on that. In Regina kind of shunning that part of her personality away from herself, maybe what she's really saying from Zelina's point of view is, I'm going to deny that that part of myself is a part of myself, and that I'm going to now move forward and even forget that that happened. And maybe that sort of is a slap in the face to Zelina, who had been working with her to really focus on the fact that she could change. Yeah. Maybe Regina just doesn't, is irked because she doesn't like having a roommate as much as she thought she would. I don't know. Yeah. That, <laughs> maybe. Maybe Regina, yeah. Maybe Regina was just used to having the empty nest. She had really spread out her stuff, and she wasn't so happy <laughs> to deal with a, a cluttered baby. Yeah, exactly. She comes home, there's a bunch of boxes there. Zelina hasn't even taken the time to unpack. That's really inconsiderate. I don't care if you have a baby. Unpack. Do you, do, <laughs> would you take Regina's side in the in the whole feather gate? Do you think that Zelina was silly and careless in you know losing the, the feather? No, I don't. I mean, it's like Zelina was obviously very excited to tell Regina about it and was obviously embarrassed and... Kind of, I think a little upset at herself that she didn't know exactly where it was. Um, so you know, it's again, it's it's the thought that counts, and and I don't know. Again, it wasn't again, it wasn't a a memento of somebody I just lost who was obliterated by Olympian Crystal Cox. Um, <laughs> it, it's so I can't necessarily put myself in in those silver slippers, but uh, so. But at the same time, it's like, you know what, she, her heart's in a good place, Regina. Give her, give, give, she's taking care of this, this child and it's all new to her. Like, just lay, lighten up a little. Yeah, I mean, and you were a new mother too at one point, Regina. You know how scatterbrained you can be. I'm sure Zelina was not malicious whatsoever. She just happened to lose the feather under a couple of boxes. And it, we see it show up Forrest Gump style at the very end. And let's talk about that actually. <laughs> We have the often used trope on Once Upon a Time of montages over, you know, some silent shots before it cuts to the credits where Snow White and Regina are talking and Regina admits to Snow White that she was a horrible stepmother and basically asks her advice of, you know, when you re when you're really down at your most negative state, how do you remain so positive? Of course, it always comes down to hope because that's Once Upon a Time for you. And Regina is able to kind of use her speech to move on and realize that she does 
have hope that Robin's in a better place and now she can be a little bit happier now. Did you have any thoughts about that last scene in Montage? At first, I thought maybe like someone had shot the red bird and that was the feather. I was like, oh no, that's... Uh... <laughs> Jafar had electrified it, decided to cook it up. He was pretty hungry. Exactly. Um, uh, I know, I thought it was... I mean, it was, again, kind of playing on that once upon a time trope of, uh, you know, things aren't black and white. Like, to some people, I'm a villain. To other people, I'm a, I'm a hero. Um, and then, so it's... But I, I like the part where, she again, she's she's going back to, okay, you know what, square one, I'm starting a new story for myself. This is one where the evil queen doesn't even get a part, and she's choosing to believe that this one's going to have a better ending than her last story. Um, it, it's, it's nice that it ends on a positive note. I'd like to see her patch things up with Zelina. I think the Snow White-Regina relationship is one of the most understated relationships on Once Upon a Time nowadays, and I... Love it every time they go back to it because that was a conflict that really spurred along the first couple of seasons. And I, I really like checking in with them once in a while. They really don't. <laughs> once upon talk. a time? Well, they, they, they don't have too many, too, too many interactions. I'd say maybe no. like three or four per season. But I always like it because it's clear that these two have a history and it's a very complicated relationship, but they've sort of become friends over the course of time. So I always like it when we revisit this relationship. And, you know, if it means Regina will build a bridge and get over it, then I'm happy better. And maybe Robin will return as a force ghost and undo all of that character development, but we will see. To close things off, Kurt, let's talk about the final scene of this episode. A little bit of a cliffhanger. We did not see Evil Queen once this episode, in spite of being hyped up as the big villain going into season six. We get a little bit of a taste here, uh, a lick of the green in the margarita glass, if you will, as Alina gets settled into her home from season three on the outskirts of town and she finds the evil queen. Kurt, what do you think the chances are that the two of them are going to be in cahoots together? <sighs> so, well, it's going to be one, it's going to go one of two ways. Either they will or they won't, which doesn't really answer your question. Um, what I would, what I would like to see is Alina turn her back on the evil queen and realize that, you know what? I thought that the part of me that I could relate to most is this evil part, or as actually the Regina uh, that I've come to know and love, isn't really necessarily all that different. I don't need to force a relationship with this kind of very clarified, very pure evil. Um, that Regina, uh, the the Regina who remains, is is the one that she actually has more in common with. That's where I want would like Zelina to get. Um, I just don't know if it's necessarily going to happen. However, I do feel like they tried a lot in season five to paint a redemption story for Zelina. I don't feel, and I, even, even parts of this episode, I feel they are trying to, like Zelina didn't intentionally lose the, the fletching from Robin Zero to, to give to Regina. Uh, it was just kind of an accident. So, um, and you know, unless they're trying to push Regina into a really dark place by uh, making it apparent to her that she pushed away her sister into the hands of the evil queen. I, I do think that we're going to see I, uh, Zelina uh, choose Regina over the evil queen at some point. Maybe not initially, but I think eventually. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that's the way that this goes. I think at some point it's going to happen. I, I just have a gut feeling that she's going to join up with the evil queen for now because she's going to feel spurred based on yeah. the most recent fight Regina had with her. And that sucks. And that's a little petty. And that's something out of like a teen soap opera. But 
I could totally see it happening, but hopefully that doesn't mean that they completely unravel all the development that Zelina got, as you just mentioned. But, you know, Evil Queen kind of needs an ally here with Mr. Goldoff doing his own thing, so I could totally see her find Zelina as a temporary ally. Yeah, and it's I agree. In the short term, I think she's going to at least explore this and kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, she's going to be the 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 hero sidekick who who you know joins the the bad guys for a, a couple episodes because it feels a little bit spurned. But I think I think she's going to end up uh, you know end up in Regina's court. So if you guys out there have any thoughts as to if Zelina will join up with the evil queen or what Emma's possible degradation may be, or if Morpheus is actually the uh, the god of dreams, and if he, the adult form might possibly appear again on Once Upon a Time, you always have a bunch of ways of reaching out to us. You can always comment here on Post Show Recaps, and while you're here on the site, make sure you go to postshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes, if you haven't yet, to subscribe to your Once Upon a Time only podcast feed. All of the coverage that Kurt and I are doing of Season 6 will drop right in there as soon as we get it released. So make sure you're subscribed. And while you're there, please rate and review us as well. We are building slowly but surely out a book of some very nice reviews, and we'd love to really leaf through a bunch of them. As always, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. I am at a Mike Bloom type. Kurt is at Kurt Clark. Make sure you check out all the other great stuff that's going on here on Post Show Recaps. Fear of the Walking Dead has just wrapped up. I know SNL <laughs> is premiering next week. Uh, is, is did I intentionally did I unintentionally make a pun about that, Kurt? No, I was kind of chuckling at uh, Fear the Walking Dead is wrapped up in terms of th- thank- thankfully. thankfully. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a mercy kill, if you will. We're out in the middle of a field. Head sh- headshot. Yeah, putting a bullet right in its brain. But I know SNL is coming back. Mr. Robot just wrapped up. There's going to be some Westworld coverage coming to Post Show Recap, which is going to be super exciting. That'll be fun. So make, so make sure you're subscribed to the main feed as well. To finish things off, Kurt, we need a hashtag for people who made it all the way to the end of this podcast. Uh, you know, how about we go with uh, hashtag Save Your Spasms? Uh, I love it. Hopefully, we'll see many more coming up, or maybe some other s- symptoms of Emma's yeah. savior status. So, hashtag Save Your Spasms. We made it all the way to the end of this podcast. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, you guys are are the reason why we do this podcast. We love talking to the Once Upon a Time fandom on post-show recaps. So let us know your thoughts and your theories throughout the week. We'll be back next week to talk about episode two of season six. But for now, if you're flying through the air on an umbilical cord, you're probably in an unborn baby stream. Just saying. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. I feel